As I've prepared for the message this morning with Esther chapter 2, if you're familiar with that chapter, in my mind I see this balance between this this impossible balancing act of two uh, contemporary modern day events that take place on a yearly basis. Every year we see some kind of beauty pageant that takes place and women are paraded in front of a watching audience perhaps on television in front of millions and millions of people. And the paraded, like, um, things for us to gawk at, to be impressed with. Um, And the truth is, most men who are watching it, they're waiting for one thing to take place, and that's the bikini contest. We're going to see that in Esther chapter 2. But the balancing act with that is there is something that that has been started in the, in the recent years, I don't know exactly how long, but it's called the uh, Golden Raspberry Awards. And it is just the opposite of the Oscars. And every year a group of people publish the Golden Raspberry Awards and they give the Razzie Award to the worst movie, to the worst actor of the year, to the worst actress, to the worst supporting actor, to the worst supporting actress, and they do this in all seriousness, but yet it's really fun for them to poke fun of those whom they deem as you are the worst of the worst this past year. And what caught my attention was they also give something called the, um, the Razzie Redeemer Award. The Razzie Redeemer Award And they give that award to somebody who last year received the worst in some category, but then redeemed themselves the following year and received a best nomination in their mind. In 2016, it was Mel Gibson who received that award. Uh, One year it was going from uh, acting in the movie The Expendables 3, which if you're of the female gender, you've probably not seen that movie and just say, thank you, Jesus, that I didn't. So he went from receiving the worst to that, to the following year receiving the, the best, receiving an Oscar, I believe, uh, for the movie um, Hacksaw Ridge. So he went from one to the other. In Esther chapter 2, we're going to see this parading of women. We're going to see this beauty pageant that takes place. And although the text doesn't tell us, the majority of those women had to walk away from that like they had just received a Razzie. I didn't get chosen. I didn't get picked. But yet I still had to go through the process, the humiliating process of competing. Uh, May God teach us this morning as we open up his word and look. Uh, Let me pray, though, before we read the scripture. Father, we ask that your spirit would be present and that you would teach us. Lord, you know that we come this morning with different agendas. We come with different anxieties and frustrations and brokenness. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would be present and that you would soften our hard hearts, that you would overturn any hardness that's there, 
that you would make aware of us sins that are present that we weren't aware of. Father, speak through the power of your word this morning. May we hear grace and may we hear Jesus and may we see him in this Old Testament passage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I don't know if you caught earlier, but Jim, as he's reading the, the, the Psalm 62, slipped up and said, um, instead of the word extortion, he said that there's no, no need or no use in exhortation. Well, exhortation is preaching, so Jim, we're going to have to dock your pay this week for that one. <laughs> it's, it's my honor to do so. Uh, Esther chapter 2, here we go. And I'm going to stop a couple times in here, so just stick with me if you would. After these things, we're going to stop right there after these first three words. Uh, what does that mean, after these things? There is, most commentators and theologians will tell us that between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there is a four-year period. And if you remember in chapter 1, uh, the Ahasuerus, which was the king of Babylon, the king of Persia, had thrown this party for 180 days. And it's expected that there were between 1,000 and 2,000 people there. They were all of the high important representatives from 127 different provinces that came to King Xerxes' party. And so when the text says Ahasuerus, it's the same thing as saying uh, emperor or Caesar or king or president. And so when we see in this particular passage in, in the book of Esther, when we see the word Ahasuerus, we assume, we believe anyways, that he's referring to King Xerxes. And so in chapter 1, King Xerxes throws this party, and at the end of the party, he wants to welcome in his wife and the queen Vashti, and he wants to brag on her. And so he summons at the conclusion of this 180-day party, bring my wife in and parade her before the people. And he did that because he had just shown them, I can do whatever I want. I have everything mankind wants, and I want you to see the last thing I have, and it's this beautiful queen. And she says, I ain't going. Forget it. You are not going to parade me like livestock in front of your party goers who are drunk. I will not participate in being gawked at and lusted over just for your sake. So the king, through the advice of Memukin, one of his councilmen, uh, comes up with this new law to send her away, to never again be able to enter into the presence of the king. And just a small takeaway with that is, sometimes doing the right thing has drastic consequences. Consequences that you will feel for the rest of your life. Obedience is costly. And so that takes place. And then we see these words in chapter 2, after these things. And we believe there's a four-year period where King Xerxes most likely took his warriors and went off to attempt to conquer the, 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 the power of Greece. But as you know, history, he failed. 
and he came back in humility, in defeat. And we see these words, after these things, when the anger of the king Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in the provinces of his kingdom to gather all of the beautiful young virgins to harem or to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the, church, or the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. We believe Susa, the citadel, is probably somewhere uh, in Iran near the Iraqi border of today. Um, let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai. And Mordecai was a man who was brought from Jerusalem, probably not brought, either was born in Babylon or come as just a young infant, because here we are some 70, 80, 90 years later. But Mordecai's Jewish name, his Persian name is Marmaduke, Marduk, from the Persian god Marmaduke. Uh, But his Jewish name is Mordecai, and he is a key player in the rest of this book. Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jokaniah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, which is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's orders and his edict was, were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken to the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young women pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with, or her, with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from among the king's palace. And she advanced advanced her and the young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known to her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Mordecai is her adopted father, and he loves her and in his Uh, has great care for her. And just imagine for a moment what that would be like to have your adopted flesh be put up for auction for this pagan king who has thousands of young women in their harem. And she's either going to be chosen to be the next queen or she's just going to be after the one-night stand shuffled into the harem to live out a life of great loneliness. And it is killing Mordecai, as it would each one of us. Um, verse 12, Now when the turn came from each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointment for women, 
When the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. In the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to the king, Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tabeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all of the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all of the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bignathan and Teresh, uh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. We see four different main characters in the book of Esther. You have King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, You have Mordecai, who is the cousin of Esther. And then you have Esther herself. And then there's one more to come here in a little while uh, where life is not going to go well for him. In this book, I just want to remind the context just really quickly again that these people who are living in Babylon are doing so for the most part. The Jewish people who remained in Babylon are doing so out of a sense of disobedience. God had told them that around 586, through many prophets, you as a people are going to be destroyed and devastated, and you're going to be carried away by a pagan king. It was King Nebuchadnezzar that fulfilled that as the king of Babylon, I believe around 586, 587 B.C. But God in his grace told his people through the prophet Jeremiah, you will only be in uh, captivity and exile for 70 years. And true to his word, after being in exile for 70 years, a decree was issued, I believe, by King Cyrus who said, you're free to go home. Go back home and build again the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of protection around Jerusalem. Go. And most of these Jews decided, we're told it was millions compared to just thousands who returned. Millions of them stayed in Babylon for the simple reason, 
life was too good and too comfortable in this foreign pagan land. And so they chose not to go. Now enter into the story of uh, uh, King Xerxes. Uh, Let me back up a second. Here's a quote we read last week, and I want to read it again. It is such a good quote from uh, Reverend Harry Ironside, who said, They were to learn, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, they were to learn in affliction what they would not, what they would not learn in years of blessing and forbearance. Please tell me you see that coming for us. They, God's chosen people, were taken into captivity because, as Harry Ironside said, they were to learn in affliction what they refused to learn in years of great blessing. Isn't that how it goes? God blesses his people, and we choose we don't need him anymore, and we go our own way. And this is the story of the whole Old Testament, this roller coaster ride of great faithfulness, obedience, and then great disobedience, and God coming in and intervening, and God working through pagan kings. Last week we looked at three points. Takeaway number one last week was that God's patience has limits, thus necessitating his discipline. The second one we looked at was God's kingdom is drastically different than the kingdom of this world. We're going to look at that just a little bit this morning. And takeaway number three from last week was God may dwell in the shadows, but he is still caring for and governing all things. Uh, This morning, we see in this passage, or I see in this passage, and don't get nervous on me, there are five points that I want to go through. And I see the clock. And so each point is only going to be a minute to 20 minutes apiece. Minute to three minutes, Lord willing, apiece. But we're going we're to go quickly, I promise. Um, if you're a note taker, just take the notes. Or just, just write down the main point. Um, some of them I've borrowed and in, in edited a little bit from some other folks. Some of them um, are mine, but surely there is nothing new under the sun. Point number one I want to look at here quickly is we should, we, God's people, we should be amused at the overindulgence of King Xerxes. We see in chapter one, and now we see here again in chapter two, that King Xerxes is the epitome of overindulgence. Who do you know that throws a party for 180 days and spends millions on it? That should amuse us. As God's people, that should not entice us. That should not make us jealous to live the lifestyle of the rich and the famous. It should amuse us in the sense of, oh, they have no idea what they're doing. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. We see as indulgence in the fact that in chapter 2, we read that he takes one year to beautify these women. How sickening is that? I want to parade all of these women before me, but before they are worthy to come into my presence and worthy, and make no mistake, 
uh, when it says here that they go see him at night, and then the following morning they go to the, to the, uh, the other concubine who's in charge of all, of, to the other uh, eunuch who's in charge of all the other concubines, what we're being told in this text is they are being prepared for 12 months with different oils and spices to go in and have a one-night stand with the king. And then in the morning, the king chooses, depart from my presence, and you will never see me again unless I call for your name one more time. He is a king of overindulgence. In the, gospel, or in the New Testament, we're told in 1 John chapter 2, and it is so easy for us, we as children, as long, as children of God, as long as we're in the flesh, and as long as we live in a time period and era where we experience incredible blessings, we will struggle with the passage that we're going to read. Because for some of us, we look at what King Xerxes experienced, and man, I'd like to have a part of that. If only I could have just a little bit more. And we see in 1 John chapter 2, the words of Jesus' brother, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. At the end of this sermon, I'm not going to have individual applications, individual points of takeaway. My goal is and desire is that as we go through each one of these five, that you'll come to your own takeaways. And point number one that we just looked at, we should be amused at the overindulgences of King Xerxes. It should sit wrongly in our stomach. We should see it and be bothered by it and seek to live a life. Is being wealthy wrong? Absolutely not. But there's this sense of overindulgence that is sinful. Point number two is we should cry at the treatment of women in this passage. Let me say that again because I want that to sink in. Because some of you already beat me to that point. Some of you are going, oh yeah, I probably should have. You read Esther chapter 2 and we should walk away from the hearing of that word and we should cry at the treatment of women in this passage and we should attempt to uh, bring it into our world today and say, how do we as a people today in 2019 do the same thing? We should weep. Weep at how we mock women with turning them into objects to be gawked at and to be lusted over. In verse 7, we see the words referring to Esther herself, the young woman, had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And by all means, God was gracious to her and that's what he provided. But I suspect that as most women read that passage or hear those words, a bit of their heart goes, 
He's not talking about me. And it should make us sick in our stomach, men. How we objectify women and make them feel less than what God has created them to be. Instead of seeing women as someone who's created as an image bearer of God, as a daughter potentially of the king of creation, men, we turn them into objects to satisfy the desires of our heart. I want you to think for just a second, and we we alluded to this just a little while ago. What was that like for the other hundreds of women who walked in to spend the night with King Xerxes and then was banished until he called them again? To be in a concubine in that day and age meant that you were destined most likely for a life of absolute loneliness. To never have a husband, to never have any children, and only to be summoned when the king wants to use your body. Step, step with me into 2019. How do we, as men, how do we objectify women? How do we make them feel less than what God has called them to be and created them for? It should make us cry as we watch our society today. It should make us cry as we examine our own hearts in the things that we do with our eyes and the things that come out of our mouths. We're told, um, uh, let, me, let me move on, point number three. Esther was a woman of grace, wisdom, obedience, and loyalty. Yes, she was beautiful in form and she was beautiful to look at, but that wasn't the sum total of who God created her to be. She was a woman of a woman of grace, a woman of great wisdom, a woman of obedience and loyalty. And we use that word of obedience not in the sense that she was a woman who knew her place and she obeyed her king. We're told in the text that even though she's now in the presence of the king and she's to be queen, the text tells us that she continued to obey her adopted father, Mordecai. And what a beautiful thing that was. (laughs) She was a woman of grace. We see uh, in verse 9, And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And she quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. That wasn't just because she was beautiful. It was because God's grace dripped out of her. There was a sense of winsomeness about her spirit that the the eunuch in charge of the harems saw it. 
Yes, she was beautiful to look at, but the, the, the head eunuch Haggai, he saw that there was something winsome in her spirit. If you just look up a simple definition of, of what it means to be winsome, it's being pleasant, delightful, attractive in a sweet, engaging way. A person who is winsome draws you to him or to her. We are intrigued by that person's charming and gracious spirit. Ladies, may it be your prayer and may it be your habit to live a life of grace and winsomeness and loyalty. We see that she is loyal that to her people. She does not out her nationality. She, she waits and she allows it to come out in God's sovereign providential timing. She demonstrated wisdom She went to the head eunuch as it was her turn to go in and spend the night with the king. And she's told she could take in whatever she wants. And the text very carefully and intentionally tells us that she listened to Haggai and did what he suggested. Wise people seek out others' advice. Wise people are teachable. They're not know-it-alls. They don't just rely on outward appearance and personality. They're teachable. They go, they long to learn from others. Proverbs chapter 1 tells us to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Go back just one more second and, and think of, I wonder, I wonder what the, some of those other ladies did. Can you imagine what that was like for them to all be together, taking turns, knowing, okay, you're going in, I, I, I get to go in. And, and the haughtiness. <laughs> and how many of them thought, I've got this in a bag based on my own wisdom. And we're reminded in that passage that we just read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Point four, Esther's rise to a sense of power was not just dumb luck or because she was beautiful. God was ruling and governing from the shadows. It would be, be so easy to just conclude, she got there because she is beautiful. That's just how the world works. And certainly that had something to do with it. She was attractive. The text tells us. But please don't make any mistakes that God rules from the shadows. God is still pulling the strings so that his purposes, his decrees, his plan will take place. Even in a pagan land with a pagan king. We ride to success not on the tide of human affairs, but you and I ride to success on the tide of God's providence. Although the author of Esther may or may not have seen God's hand behind the events of chapter 2, we see the story of Esther from a different perspective, that our task is not to hope for a lucky break. Did you hear that? 
Our task is not to hope for a lucky break, but to seek God's direction for our lives and to act in obedience to Him. I don't have this for you to look at, but Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all of those other things will be added. Let me read that again. Because some of us sitting here this morning are in situations where we don't like it. We may be mad at God. We don't understand what he's doing. And we want out. We want something different. And we're reminded in this story that Esther's rise would not just dumb luck. Or because she was beautiful. Because she had it all together. God was ruling from the shadows. Our job is not to hope for a lucky break, but to seek God's direction for our lives and to act in obedience to Him. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You may be in a situation where you're saying, I don't know what to say. And Paul reminds us, the Spirit is praying for you. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose even though it may not seem like it's good, it is. Past failures, I need you to hear this. Past failures do not write us out of a significant part in God's script for the future. The nation of Israel should have tapped out and given up and said, we are going to get what we deserve. We already did once, and now we're still living in disobedience by not going back. And we're told in this, past failures do not write us out of a significant part in God's script for the future. Another way of saying that is God's able to give us a do-over. Over and over and over. Last point, number five. Our bride is vastly different than King Xerxes. (laughs) I hope you see Jesus in this passage. I hope you understand and you know that this Old Testament passage is telling us a great story, but this passage is giving us a type of the Messiah to come, and in the person of Esther, we see Jesus. In the person of King Xerxes, on some level, we see the antithesis of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Think of how King Xerxes treated his bride. She was just one after several hundred, if not thousands. 
And the only way he allowed her to come into his presence was that she submitted to a 12-month process of beautification. And our bride, Jesus, who has married his church, who has died for his church, our bride says to us, you can't clean yourself up. And I am coming to you. I am seeking you. I am running to you when you are in your dirtiness and your sinfulness. And not someone else, but I, your bride, will take you and make you clean and perfect without spot spot or blemish. I will make you perfect. Men, what, um, who would your wife in a moment of honesty say you are more like in the way that you treat her and interact with her? Would your wife say, he treats me like an object? Or would your wife say, my husband lives out these words in Ephesians 5 by God's grace? He loves me as Jesus loved his church. I want to end with this quote. Uh, It comes from a professor at Westminster Seminary, one of my son's professors and friend of uh, Dr. Jim Bland. Uh, Dr. Ian DeGood, I'm not sure if I pronounced his name right, Dr. Ian DeGood, but he says this, When our eyes are fixed on Christ, our bride, we can laugh at the best and not fear the worst that the empire has to offer. We will be strengthened to stand firm by faith, waiting for our sure salvation. At this point in the story, um, Esther has no idea what's coming. And I'm sure she is fearful because she doesn't know how her bride is going to treat her when she finds out the truth about her. And you and I have this beautiful luxury of knowing how our bride is going to treat us. We get to look backwards and know with great confidence that he has already said, you are mine. I bought you. Rest in that. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful for your kindness and your mercy to us. Holy Spirit, take what is from me and not you and cause us to quickly forget it. But would you take the truth of your promises and of your powerful word and we use it like a double-edged sword and would you cut and soothe and massage it into our DNA, into our being. Jesus, we need you. We ask for your grace as we leave today and go throughout this week, as we interact with the world who desperately needs to know you. Give us grace grace to have a winsome spirit to represent you in a way that is honorable and pleasing and holy and gracious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.